Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarwaran country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. It is with great sadness that I share the news that a sacred directions tree was cut down on Monday the 26th of October, along with the arrest and removal of traditional owners and protectors at the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy. Traditional owners have called this an act of cultural genocide, and more sacred trees are at risk. You might be asking if this is union business, or why workers should concern themselves with such matters. Here's a statement from the Victorian Trades Hall Council. We, including many leaders and residents of the state of Victoria, and as members of Australian unions, acknowledge that we live on the stolen and unceded lands of First Nations peoples. We believe that in stating an acknowledgement to country, we implicitly recognise that the traditional owners, custodians and ancestors across this continent never ceded sovereignty of their lands. An acknowledgement to country must therefore come with concrete actions to support the autonomy, sovereignty and rights of traditional owners of the lands on which we exist, in efforts to repair, correct and halt further injustices to First Nations peoples. We acknowledge the Japarong traditional owners in their rights to sovereignty and autonomy. We support the Japarong traditional owners in their rights to protect the culturally significant and sacred landscape, including its songlines and trees. We understand that Japarong traditional owners' sacred country is at threat of destruction by the proposed redevelopment of the Western Highway by Major Roads Project Victoria. We support the Japarong traditional owners to veto the proposed development plan of the Western Highway by Major Roads Project Victoria. We support the Northern Route option proposed by the Japarong traditional owners. As part of establishing a treaty with First Nations peoples, the traditional owners of these lands must hold autonomy. Consent must be respected. The right of traditional owners to protect their lands must be respected, supported and protected from ongoing desecration and destruction caused by the actions of the Victorian state government and other third parties. Work has currently ceased on the project due to an injunction pending a court decision later this month. However, protectors have been forcefully removed from the site and a significant area has been fenced off and continues to be guarded by private security. After the events of Monday, October 26, several protectors remained in a tree within the restricted area. I interviewed Sam the possum after they had come down from the tree to get water and had been subsequently arrested and forced off the site. I am on bail and therefore heading back to Nam. Camp is still working together, right now working on being grounded. People are encouraged to still go to top camp and then be directed where to go. The MRPV have control of all of the original camp places, but Japarong is a lot more than just the stretch of roads, so of course resistance will, yeah, continue. Yes, and you were up one of the trees. When did you come down from there? I came down to try and get my friend more water, so I came down yesterday at about 12 o'clock. Yeah, my friend's still up there. Okay. And they have they got food and water? Not very much. 
and they have no and they have no sit. They're they're perching on branches, so it's extremely hard to sleep. And also, yeah. they have a hellish amount of generators on in the camp. Yeah. And, uh, and that is just the complete opposite of what the camp was before. We were up there with, and there was this beautiful grey bird that was nesting and feeding its children in the grandfather tree. It had to tolerate a huge amount of light and obnoxious noise. Yeah, and how long has that been going on, like the generators and everything? That was from Tuesday night when they cleared everyone out. They moved, they moved the generators and lights in straight away. So who moved you on? Did the police come and... Yeah, they have they have um, 24-hour security there. They handed me over to the police. So when they came in on Tuesday, it was very sudden? Yeah, they were very swift. Yeah. Public order response police. When it was mm. pretty odd, there was nothing disorderly. COVID has meant that a lot of people that might have come up and been able to be there haven't. Um, and it seems like the timing was chosen quite deliberately. It seems that way. So your friend is planning to stay up in the tree. Is the work literally going on below them? Yeah, the work's going on around them. Um, yeah. As I said to the security guards, it's about this being our home. They're dismantling our home. We don't want to go. So you said you were coming back to Nam. Do you need to do some legal things? Yeah, they everyone that got arrested got bail as conditions. So basically everybody was forced to go back to wherever their address on their licence said? Yeah. So what is going to happen now? Firstly, there's um, work on contesting the bail conditions so we can go back and continue to support. There was definitely police mistreatment during the um, during the eviction. Yeah, I saw a little video. People being picked up and like manhandled and carried away. The search and rescue came. They weren't. I wasn't lost. I wasn't. Didn't need to be rescued. They said they were coming up, saying that they were checking that I was safe. Then they go and proceed to cut away my shelter and my food and my water, which is the complete opposite of what they said. And it's freezing cold out there. And And then they forced you to come down? I I came down to try and get more water for my friend. They tried to get me to come down many times through manipulation. Did you get arrested when you came down? Yeah. A five grand fine is nothing compared to the directions tree. Yeah, the tree that was cut down earlier this week. It was so beautiful. It, you'd you'd be able to sit there at sunrise and sunset and watch and watch so many gliders enter and exit it. It was like in the grandfather tree. I, I, there was that one. There was that bird, but in the yeah. directions tree, it, it was teeming with life. Another protector, Gabe, remained in the tree until Friday. Victoria Police refused to give them food and water for several days in order to force them to come down. Gabe has been charged with intentionally obstructing an emergency service worker on duty and refusing to leave a restricted access area. Help is needed. You can support the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy in the following ways. 1. Go to the embassy and protect the trees on the ground. 
visit the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy Facebook page for more information about how to get there and what to bring. 2. Ring Daniel Andrews on 0396515000 and let him know what you think. 3. Educate yourself about the situation and spread the word to others. 4. Donate to the embassy on GoFundMe. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. This year, we celebrate the centenary of the founding of the Communist Party of Australia in October 1920. Regular listeners will know how passionate the Stick Together team is about remembering and learning from our history, and commemoration presents a perfect opportunity to connect with the people and the struggle that has got us where we are today. You'll hear excerpts from the freshly launched book entitled Comrades. The book contains short biographies honouring the memory of some of the many thousands of ordinary communists who worked throughout their lives in their workplaces and localities to help build movements and promote progressive change throughout Australia. Nell Rickey was an actor, a playwright and an activist. Between 1916 and 1939, Nell's influence spanned the cultural, industrial, political and educational arenas as an actor, playwright, director, producer, union leader, orator, speaker, writer and editor. Her impact was felt from Melbourne to Sydney to Queensland at open-air meetings performances at the socialist and communist halls, as a speaker at the Yarrabank on stage and radio. Instrumental in forming the Socialist Repertory Theatre in 1918, Nell emphasised it means the artistic advancement of the party. It stands for the encouragement of art, of culture. Nell, as a director and performer, shaped the program, including both classical and contemporary pieces. By 1918, her political abilities were interwoven with her theatrical prowess. Elected to the Victorian Socialist Party Executive in March 1918, she was an ardent supporter of street and factory meetings to spread socialist ideas. In Williamstown, Nell and Joe Scurry ladled out socialism and peace to a very attentive audience. Now created unique lecture recitals. Her Women Under Socialism lecture featured blackboard illustrations and pianoforte selections. Her approach proves the revolutionary propaganda can be put over in a more attractive manner than is generally supposed. Nell gained notoriety when speaking alongside a red flag at Yarra Bank. She was arrested together with Jenny Baines, Bella Lavender and others. At her court appearance on May Day 1919 for breaching the War Precautions Act, she was sentenced to one month in jail. Held visitorless in Pentridge Jail during the influenza pandemic, she later said that two books sustained her, George Dale's The Industrial History of Broken Hill and R.S. Ross's Eureka, 
With Percy Laidlaw, May Francis and others, Nell became a founding member of the Victorian branch of the CPA in 1920 and enthusiastically promoted its revolutionary role, for example, giving a Victorian Labour College lecture on the objective of a communist party. Unsurprisingly, Nell was active in her union, the Theatrical Employees Association. Joining the Theatricals Melbourne Trades Hall Council delegation in 1922, she argued for equal pay and advocated a reduction in women's working hours. In the 1920s, women made up a much lower proportion of party members, and particularly before the formation of the militant women's groups in 1927, were generally expected to carry out the necessary but unglamorous tasks like selling party literature and housekeeping. Allowance was made for women publicists with platform skills. Thus Nell, with a wealth of experience from her Melbourne days, rose to prominence rapidly. A fervent advocate for motherhood endowment and women's working rights on an equal pay panel with Pearl Hanks and Mary Grant, she described women as both sex slaves and wage slaves with equal pay necessary until capitalism was overthrown. Joan Goodwin was one of the outstanding women leaders forged by the struggles of the 1930s, the Depression and the threat of fascism. She was a member of the CPA from 1932 to 1991 and was one of the few women who went underground when the party was declared illegal in 1940. Joan was eight years old when her family was plunged into poverty after her father lost his job and did not work for another 17 years. It was allegedly to make way for returning soldiers from the Great War. But Joan always believed it was because he was a Catholic and a member of the Clarks Union. A bright student, Joan won a senior scholarship to the University of Melbourne in 1929 to study arts. In her homemade clothes, she felt like a fish out of water but found kindred spirits in the Labour Club. The club was different to other clubs, not just because of its leftist politics, but because the men helped with supper and cleaning up. It was Charles Silver who persuaded Joan to join the CPA in 1932. When she eventually told her parents, they were horrified. To spare them embarrassment, she adopted the pseudonym J. Hunter when she wrote for the Proletariat, the Melbourne University Labour Club magazine or Working Woman, the CPA broadsheet that was sold at public meetings and outside factories for one penny. Joan increasingly chafed against the restrictions on her life. She once turned up at an anti-war meeting of the League Against Imperialism in a blue, full-length lace dress because she had told them at home she was going to a show. She eventually left home and shared flats with various girlfriends, supporting herself by private tutoring. Joan threw herself into the two big social movements of the time, the unemployed workers' movement, and the movement against war and fascism, and also worked hard to improve the lot of women. In 1934, she married Alan Finger, a brilliant medical student. However, despite his qualifications, Alan, as a known communist, had no chance of getting a job in Melbourne, so he accepted the position of outpatients registrar at Royal Adelaide Hospital. When they arrived in Adelaide in 1936, Joan and Alan found the state CPA branch near Collapse. There were a mere 36 members, only three of them women. 
They played key roles in its revival, establishing study groups, strengthening the left book club and building the peace movement. Joan was invited to join the Labour Party and after discussions with the CPA, did so as a way of building a united front. She was elected to the CPA's Central Committee at the 1938 National Congress. When Alan was appointed to the Infectious Diseases Hospital, Joan learned to drive an Austin 7 to continue her political work. Their son John, born in 1939, went to meetings with Joan, tucked into a basket in the back of the Austin. The following year, the family went to Sydney to live while Alan was studying for his Diploma of Public Health. Joan had to apply for leave of absence from 19 different organisations. On 15th of June 1940, the night that the Menzies government declared the party illegal, they were raided at 2am, but important women's conference papers and addresses were not taken. When Joan went to comfort the crying baby, she had the presence of mind to hide the documents in the nappy pail. As a result of the party's illegality, Joan made the decision to go underground. May Pennyfather, who had just returned from nursing in the Spanish Civil War, offered to look after the baby. Alan was totally supportive. Joan assumed a new name, changed her appearance, limited her contact with people who knew her and moved often. Once the house she was staying at was raided and she feigned scarlet fever to deter the police from entering. She proved adept at disguise. She wore glasses she did not need and very different clothes. After a year or so, Joan went back to Adelaide and emerged from her undercover existence. She and Alan had seen each other a couple of times and she was pregnant with their son Bill, who was born in 1941. She became the secretary of the Political Rights Committee in Adelaide, which was a front for the CPA during illegality. In 1943, when the CPA was again legal, Joan became state secretary, the first woman in that role in the South Australian Party. By 1944, the South Australian Party membership had increased to 500. There were so many women working for the party in 1943-44, that they set up a creche. Joan would have been prepared to go into the army to fight fascism, but having two young children disqualified her. In 1945, Joan and Alan separated. The boys stayed in Adelaide with relatives and she went to work in Lithgow where she became secretary of the Central Western District Committee. Joan worked as a Sydney district organiser in 1946, but was back in Lithgow as the party secretary by the time of the 1949 coal strike, where she was involved in broadcasting and writing leaflets encouraging the involvement of miners' wives. Others were addressed to the armed services who had been brought in to mine the coal and break the strike. In 1948, Joan had married Les Goodwin, a comrade working in the Lithgow powerhouse. At the end of 1949, she asked to be relieved of her party position and went into industry as part of a broader push to understand the masses. She got a job at Lithgow Hospital as a ward's maid. Within two years, she was a shop steward with the Hospital Employees Union, then branch secretary and eventually delegate to the Lithgow Trades and Labour Council. In 1959, Joan had a breakdown probably triggered by overwork. On her doctor's advice, she didn't return to Lithgow Hospital and just did general party work for three years. At the beginning of 1962, she returned to Melbourne to care for her 80-year-old mother. To support herself, she worked as a teacher. Les did not join her as he had work that suited him after a long period of unemployment. In Melbourne, Joan joined the Preston and the education branches of the CPA, the Victorian Secondary Teachers Association and the Peace Movement. She also threw her lot in with the Union of Australian Women, the CPA Women's Collective and the Women's Action Committee formed by Zelda DiPrano and others after Zelda had chained herself to the doors of the Commonwealth Building over equal pay. Joan donated money to get the organisation going. In 1982, Joan and Alan Finger, both widowed, remarried. 
Joan remained a member of the party until it dissolved in 1991. According to fellow comrade Lynn Hovey, Joan's ability as an organiser rested on her view that the way forward to revolution was to get people active around their common grievances. Her way was to develop the rank and file and educate the masses rather than capture key positions, manipulate the leadership of a struggle or perform backroom deals. She was often the conduit and the voice of reason between the passionate stance of the new feminism and the entrenched male ways of seeing the world. All in all, she was a woman ahead of her time. Topsy Small was a peace movement and unemployment activist in Perth, triggered by her experiences during the Depression. In Barrack Street one day, Topsy witnessed mounted police attacking a march of unemployed men. At that day's rally, she met Cecilia Shelley, Western Australian Secretary of the Hotel and Restaurant Employees Union, and began working with her and Catherine Susanna Pritchard to provide relief to young unemployed women. Unable to keep up mortgage payments due to unemployment, Topsy and her husband, Fred, lost their house and furniture and moved to a single room with their two children. Their only income, the doll, then 28 shillings a week. Topsy, always the one to take the political initiative, joined the CPA and was involved in party activities in Perth. When Fred found work escorting a man supposed to be mad to England and travelling back with prize bulls, Topsy and their two children moved to Sydney to meet him on his return. It was 1932 and there was almost no work. The children and then Topsy fell ill and then Fred was charged with claiming too much dole and briefly jailed. Topsy had been active in a small peace group in Perth led by Catherine Susanna Pritchard and encouraged by Mary Lamb, she attended the National Congress Against War held in Sydney in September 1933. She became active in the peace movement under the name Topsy Edwards. This was to avoid being branded at work as a troublemaker. In February 1936, she went to work in the kitchens at Sydney's premier hotel, The Australia, in Castlereagh Street, where around 60 staff of various nationalities served the hotel's restaurants. In March, Vic Workman also started there, and he and Topsy became active in the Hotel Club and Restaurant Employees Union, the HCRU, and part of the CPA branch run from the kitchen by Greek fish chef, Nick Zenodohos. The HCRU at the time was in a slump as half its members had been lost and more than half of the 3,000 still on the books were unfinancial. The right-wing secretary and organisers spent their time attempting to collect dues and doing commission award work, making little effort to enforce award conditions. Nick Zenodohos and another party activist, Grace Peebles, had managed to be elected to the executive but were unable to win much support there on industrial matters. Topsy and Vic enthusiastically joined in the formation of a ginger group in the union. They encouraged members to attend union general meetings, wrote and distributed a newsletter, The Stockpot, and got general meeting approval for an organisational committee to improve finances 
plan more efficient procedures and enable organisers to do real organising in the industry. Then, as now, one of the hardest industries to organise for better wages and conditions. Topsy was elected as an additional women's organiser. She launched into battle, insisting on her right of entry to ensure the award was being complied with. In the big stores and chains, particularly management, were used to intimidating the union's organisers. And the right-wing organisers were not above collusion, dobbing Topsy and workplace activists in to the boss as troublemakers. Topsy was subjected to threats, both from management and from right-wingers, and was grateful for the support of a group of women from a sergeant's cafe who volunteered to protect her at meetings. In 1941, their group successfully challenged the old leadership. Topsy and Vic and comrade Flo Davis became organisers. The hardest work then began as they worked all hours to enforce award conditions and build the membership. In 1942, Topsy had a much publicised win. The women could no longer be forced to wear stockings, which had used up valuable clothing coupons. In 1943, Topsy was struck by double disaster. Fred contracted TB and had to go into a sanatorium, and Topsy herself, supporting striking members at Farmers, refused to leave the building and was physically assaulted by the shop detective and the staff manager. Although members vigorously defended her, she suffered a complete collapse and was never able to return to her job with the union. Topsy remained a peace activist, campaigning against the Vietnam War in the 1960s, both as a member of Save Our Sons and as an individual protester with placards. After her husband's death in 1971, Topsy devoted herself to the campaign for nuclear disarmament. That's it for Stick Together this week. For more stories, pre-order your copy of Comrades Now from the New International Bookshop. Thanks for listening and thanks to Carmel Shute for getting in touch and sharing an important part of our history. Also thanks to Sam the Possum for taking the time to speak with us and Carolyn Mays for help with the readings. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, Whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.